Hello and welcome back to Benaiah Mighty Man of God by P. H. Thompson, an audiobook. This is chapter 13. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. 1 Samuel 30, 3-4 Benaiah couldn't believe the sight before him. From far off they could see smoke rising from what had been the city of Ziklag. It was the city where they had left their families and livestock, assuming them to be safe while the men were on military raids. As they raced towards the city, Benaiah's heart repeated one name over and over, Moriah, his wife and son, whom he promised his father-in-law he would protect. Terhana didn't want his daughter taken away to live a nomadic existence in harm's way. She should have been in a home in Kabzeel, close to her parents, safe from harm, caring for their son, not here among the Philistines. But after so much time in the stronghold, or wandering throughout all Israel and Philistia, they were finally settled in a real city of their own. It set Benaiah's mind at ease, knowing Moriah was living in a home near the wives of the other soldiers, enjoying a normal life for the first time in their marriage. Amizabad was now a year old and brought such joy to their lives. It was as it should be. Moriah didn't like living among pagans, but since Ziklag was the city of David, it was populated with only their own people. But now his worst fears were realized, and it was all his fault. What would he find? Burnt corpses? Moriah's abused body? His little boy's remains? How could he ever face her parents with the news? He would see that look again the one he saw in the faces of his own parents when he let them down and they lost their son. I told you to look after him. Even after all these years, he could still hear his mother's voice, see the accusation in her eyes when he had abandoned his brother. No, he would experience it. now he would experience it again for Mariah's family. None of the men said anything during the frantic run towards the city. They were all lost in their own thoughts, hoping they wouldn't find their worst fears realized, their families murdered. He had failed again, failed to protect those he loved. Was Yahweh punishing him for becoming a soldier rather than a priest? Hadn't he been doing the right thing? Wasn't he right where Yahweh wanted him to be? Benaiah wasn't being disobedient this time, and yet the consequences were the same. Moriah, Amiz, the men ran through the gates of the city, Charred remains of carts littered the streets, but thankfully they didn't see any dead bodies. They went to their own homes, afraid of what they would find, but needing to know the fate of their families. Benaiah stepped through the open door of his burned-out house, stepping over shattered clay pots and burned chairs. In the distance he could hear the wailing of the other men. What had they found? What would he find? His eyes searched through the rubble, his vision blurred with tears. Mariah, please don't be here. I couldn't bear to think of you suffering like this, dying like this. Mariah, Amizabad. Benaiah couldn't find anyone in the rubble, so he made his way back into the central square where the other men were also stumbling back. Did you find anything? Benaiah asked. No, they're gone, Ray said. Everyone? David asked. Yes, all gone. Who could have done this? Eliab asked. My guess is the Amalekites, David said, walking into the square. This is their handiwork. It makes them feel they have a hold over me. They knew this was my city. 
They were trying to take revenge on me for destroying their cities. They think to add to my anguish by taking my two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, and all that I hold dear, rather than killing them outright. If it had been the Philistines, the Geshurites, or the Gerzites, they wouldn't have left them alive. Benaiah sank to the dust and ashes, adding his voice to the sound of the other men, keening and sobbing. Each one had suffered loss. They wept until they had no strength left. David also wept, but Benaiah heard him thank God. How can you thank him for this? Our wives, our sons, and our daughters are all gone, Jezliah asked. David answered, I'm thankful that they're not here dead at our feet. They were taken, and Yahweh may be pleased to keep them safe and lead us to them. How can you say that? Shammah exploded at David. You yourself know how the Amalekites have always been towards our people. They attacked the children of Israel when they left Egypt and were wandering in the desert. They picked off the weak and vulnerable at the back of the line. Now they've done the same by stealing our women and children. Who knows what they'll do to them? What they may have already done to them, Eliab said, giving voice to their worst fears. All in retaliation for your attacks on them. This is your fault, David, said another. At this, several men picked up stones. They needed a scapegoat for their anger and fear, so David became their target. In spite of his own grief, Benaiah stepped in front of David, blocking him from an attack, a look of challenge in his eyes. We can't turn on each other. It won't help get our families back, Benaiah said. The men softened somewhat, but Benaiah felt he still needed to get their attention off David. If you want someone to blame for this, blame Saul. Saul, what has he got to do with this? Ray asked. My father, Jehoiada, who is a priest, told me that God had commanded Saul, through Samuel, to utterly destroy the Amalekites as punishment for their attacks on Israel from the very beginning. Saul disobeyed, sparing the king and the best of the flocks, making the excuse that the people with him were the ones who disobeyed and kept the animals alive for the purpose of sacrifice. But Samuel told him the Lord was displeased with him and that to obey was better than sacrifice. Samuel told Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom from you and has given it to another who is better than you. God, who is the strength of Israel, will not be lie or change his mind, because he is not like a mere man who would do such a thing. Because of Saul's failure to obey the voice of the Lord that day, the Amalekites remain and have troubled Israel yet again. One by one the stones dropped to the sand. David, who sat on the ground absorbing the accusations like blows from his enemies, now stood and wiped his eyes with the back of his hand. Seemingly energized by Benaiah's reminder about the wickedness of the Amalekites, God's promise to give him the kingdom, and the need to obey the Lord's command, David wiped a hand over his face as if washing away his earlier discouragement. He called out, Abiathar! Yes, my lord, answered Abiathar, son of Ahimelech. Please bring that ephod here to me. So Abiathar brought the priestly garment, which contained the Urim and the Thummim, used for discerning the will of God to David. Since Abiathar, the only surviving relative of Eli, fled with the sacred lot when he came to David at Kelia, King Saul was left without a way to discern the will of God. Inquire of the Lord if I should pursue them, and if I'll find them. Abiathar used the Urim and Thummim, and with a smile he reported, Pursue them, for you will surely overtake them and recover all that was stolen. The men who overheard the Lord's response looked at each other, mouths open in surprise. 
Benaiah laughed with joy. Could it be possible that God would lead them to the enemy, give them the victory, and best of all, reunite them with their families? David clapped a hand onto Abiathar's shoulders and gave it a squeeze. Thank you, my friend. Then he addressed the men. We are assured of victory in our quest. We will recover our families and belongings. That is the word of the Lord to us. We have nothing left to do but to obey. Although we do not know where they are, they are known to the one who sees all. He will lead us to them. Let's move out. Benaiah was encouraged by David's words and the assurance that Yahweh would give them the victory. He would see his family again. Even those who were angry at enough at David to stone him, now marched with purpose. They arrived at the brook Besor, where two hundred more of their number were waiting, seated around fires or stretched out in sleep, still exhausted from the last campaign. David updated them on the situation on Ziklag and then, and the plan to pursue the enemy. We cannot join you, my lord. Many are wounded from the previous raid from which we returned, but most of us are worn out. We can stay by the remaining supplies so they won't be looted as well, lest we be left with nothing at all to sustain the troops, one offered. David stroked his beard as he considered this. Very well. These are all the provisions we have since the town was destroyed. There are still four hundred of us. That should be enough to pursue the Amalekites. As Jonathan said, the Lord can save by many or by few. David prayed for direction and studied the ground to determine which way they headed. He chose to go northeast. As they marched, Benaiah recalled his promise to Moriah's father to protect her. He assumed she'd be safe with him. How often had he explained his need to her to be the, to be who God called him to be, a soldier, a guard, a protector. What kind of protector had he turned out to be? Please keep them safe, Lord. After traveling for half a day, they spotted a young man in the field, and he was brought to David. He was dressed in the tunic of a servant. His mouth hung open, his lips cracked, his tongue parched. David ordered a drink to be given to him. After drinking more than half the skin of water, he was able to close his mouth. Then they fed him a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. His eyes brightened with the sweetness of the food. He finished the water and sighed with relief. When did you last eat? David asked. I've had no food or water for three days. Where are you from, and whose servant are you? David asked. I'm an Egyptian who serves an Amalekite general. Three days ago I became ill, so he left me behind. Where was he up to that point? We were in the territory of Judah and the southern area of Caleb, as well as the area of the Cherethites where we invaded. We also set fire to Ziklag on our way through. David closed his eyes in thanksgiving. Praise be to the Lord, he breathed. Can you lead us to them? David asked the young Egyptian. The man's eyes widened in fear, but then he answered, If you can promise me by your God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, then I'll take you to where I know they are headed. David promised him, and the Egyptian pointed towards the east. Benaiah couldn't believe it. They were already going in the general direction of the Amalekites. Yahweh led them on this detour to find this man who would lead them directly to the enemy and their families. Benaiah thanked God for his sovereignty. After another day of travel, they came to a ridge at twilight. They heard the sound of a great company of people, as well as music and laughter. They crawled to the edge and peered over into the bowl-shaped valley. There they are, the Egyptian announced. Thank you. You are free to go, David told him. The servant fell to the ground before David. 
But, sir, I have nowhere to go. Please let me serve you, for you have shown me the mercy of God in sparing my life. David studied the man. Very well. What is your name? Nebit, my lord. Nebit, you may fight with us or refrain. We will find a place for you among our people, David promised. Thank you, my lord. I would like to refrain. I still am not well, Nebit said, standing up. Very well. Guard our things, David ordered. Nebit bowed and made his way toward the heap of supplies. He was given a weapon. Benaiah surveyed the scene before him. In the basin below them, a great multitude was spread out. Surprisingly, they were not preparing for their next battle, but eating, drinking, and dancing. There were several fires aiding with visibility, which would fade in the twilight. They could make out the spoil the Amalekites had captured from Ziklag and other towns of the Philistines and Judah, the people and livestock at the edge of the camp. They were being guarded by just a handful of soldiers, who no doubt were not happy about being excluded from the celebrations. They didn't put the prisoners in the middle of the camp, as Benaiah would have expected, but instead assumed the valley wall behind the prisoners' tents would be a sufficient rear guard. Benaiah surmised that this that would make them easier to rescue and less likely to be hurt in the fighting. He thanked God for those seemingly small details. One of the benefits of living among the Philistines and supposedly fighting the battles of of the Philistine king was that they now had access to more weapons. A few years earlier in Israel, only the king and his sons had weapons. Ever since Benaiah was young, the Philistines forbade blacksmiths in Israel lest they make swords or spears. Israelites even had to go down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, axes and sickles, and this for a charge, as Simeon had told them. But now, not only did they have weapons made for themselves, but they also plundered more from the Philistines and other groups they attacked. David divided his men, most to be involved in fighting the Amalekites, and a smaller number to rescue their families. Benaiah was a fighter, and that's where he was expected to be, but one part of him would have liked to be the one to rescue Moriah personally, to ensure she and Amizabad were safe, and to kiss her soundly. David stationed his finest archers, those that could shoot with either the right hand or left hand with equal accuracy, along the rim of the bowl. They had a great vantage point from which to target the enemy or concentrate their arrows. Those uh, who were skilled with a slingshot were next to them. They awaited David's signal to attack. When it came, the archers sent their volley of arrows into the midst of the unsuspecting warriors. Immediately following the first volley of arrows, the slingshots were fired. The music ceased and the Amalekites looked about in confusion in the semi-darkness. Once they realized they were being assaulted from all around them, they scrambled to get to their weapons, which they had removed during the, their festivities. By that time, David's men had poured over the sides like insects. The smaller group of twelve soldiers under Eliam's leadership headed straight for the prisoners. Benaiah had to focus on the fighting at hand. The Amalekites were fierce warriors, outnumbering David's men, and in spite of the element of surprise and God's assurance of success, they would still need to do the hard work of fighting. The Amalekites recovered quickly to mount a defense, but David and his men were highly motivated. They wanted their families back. The fighting was fierce, mostly one-to-one, -one, warrior against warrior. Benaiah preferred to use his club for the most part, but drew his sword or dagger when he was up against a soldier armed with one as well. The battle lasted from twilight that day until the evening of the next day. 
not all the Amalekites chose to stay and fight. When they realized the battle had turned against them, about 400 fled on camels. David's men did not even attempt to go after them, since they had arrived on foot. Benaiah was amazed at the odds. They came down against this great troop of soldiers with only 400 men. After a great slaughter, 400 Amalekites still managed to escape. How many soldiers had each man fought to recover all that was lost? Benaiah was too exhausted to count the bodies. But he couldn't rest. His thoughts were on Moriah and Amiz. Benaiah directed his steps toward the area where their families were, had been held. He stepped over dead Amalekite soldiers, his desire to see Moriah with his own eyes propelling his heavy steps. By now, many other men had also concluded the battle was over and there were no more enemies to fight and were all streaming in the same direction. He could hear shouts of joy, saw children clinging to their father's legs, husbands and wives embracing. Then he saw her, his own sweet wife, slightly disheveled but so beautiful to him, so healthy, so alive. Moriah, he called. She looked up from where she sat, stood and ran into his arms. Benaiah, I knew you'd come. I prayed and prayed. Benaiah embraced and kissed her soundly. He pulled back, looked down into her face and drank in the sight of her. Amiz? He's fine. I'll show you soon. He's sleeping. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I failed to protect you. I love you, Moriah. He rained kisses over her face and head. Shh, it's okay. I know you love me. I knew it even when you were taken away. I never doubted it. Yahweh was with us, even though we were surrounded by our enemies. They didn't hurt us. We all had such a profound feeling of peace, I can't even describe it. We knew you'd come. Benaiah kissed her again. Then Moriah led him to the tent where Amiz was sleeping. Benaiah was so happy to see him alive and well, he picked him up to shower him with kisses. The baby woke up and rewarded Benaiah with a wide-mouthed smile. Benaiah blew raspberries on the boy's belly, and Amiz erupted in giggles. They joined the others who were assessing their situation. There seemed to be no battle losses at all on their side. Amazing! Everyone who had been taken by the Amalekites were safe and unharmed. Even the spoil taken by the Amalekites was untouched, along with plunder from previous raids, great flocks and herds. David lost nothing of all their people and possessions, just as God promised, and they left with even greater riches and livestock as spoil. David was reunited with his two wives. Benaiah couldn't imagine a divided reunion like that. He was happy with his one wife. She was enough. He was blessed. Benaiah thanked Yahweh for his goodness. He was truly with David in directing him to Nebit, in giving him such a great victory over the Amalekites, and mostly in restoring their families to them safe and sound. After posting guards around the perimeter in case of a desperate counterattack, they celebrated their reunion and the goodness of the Lord. They rested well that night in the tents of their enemies, and then gathered up the spoils of war and drove their herds ahead of them. As they returned to the brook Besor, the men who had guarded the supplies came to meet them. David greeted them while many others began to tell of the great victory the Lord had given them. Some of those soldiers were also reunited with their wives and children. When they inquired about the multitude of animals with them, David said, This is David's spoil. We will divide it up among us. Benaiah heard murmuring from some of the soldiers who returned with him from battle. David heard it too. What is your concern? he asked them. Several men stood together. Because these men didn't go 
with us to fight. We don't think it's fair that they get to share in the spoils we recovered. Then, as if realizing how harsh it sounded, they offered, they can take their wives and children and go. Benaiah wondered what David's response would be. Would he penalize those who didn't fight with them? Would he be angry with these men for their selfishness? Or would he think they were right about it, not being fair for those who stayed behind to benefit from a battle in which they did not fight? David answered calmly, My brothers, you can't do such a thing with what the Lord has given us. He miraculously led us to our enemy and gave us this great victory. We didn't win this battle in our own strength. You won't find anyone who'll agree with you on this. I've made my decision. There will be equal share of spoils for those who go to battle and those who stay by the supplies. Benaiah could see the men who brought the complaint weren't pleased with David's judgment, but then they were wicked and worthless men. They weren't following David because they admired him and were looking forward to one day seeing him as king over Israel. They were greedy men who realized that if the spoil was divided between a greater number of men, it would mean less for them. They were true mercenaries, fighting with David only for personal gain. Moreover, David said, this will be a statute and an ordinance from now on. All my soldiers are equal in value. Once they returned to Ziklag, they sorted through the ruins, trying to salvage what they could. They realized they could not live in this place any longer. David sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, and in all the places where David and his men had roved, with the message, This gift is from David, taken as spoils from the enemies of the Lord. Benaiah's respect and admiration for David continued to grow as he saw the wisdom of his leadership and the blessing of God on his life. That night, as Benaiah wrapped his arms around his wife and son, he again thanked God for his protection. Truly, God had led Benaiah to be here, serving David, who did what Saul failed to do. To obey was better than sacrifice. Keep listening for chapter 14.